Open your Bibles to Colossians 2. And um, as you already heard, we're going to be in verses 6 through 15. And once you, once you turn there, you'll see uh, that verse 6 begins with the word therefore. Or in some versions, it says so then. And, and when you see words like so then or therefore at the beginning of a passage, a good practice is to look back just a little bit so you can get some context for why the word therefore is there to make the argument that he's about to make. Um, so as a reminder to you then, what we studied two weeks ago, what, what Paul has been doing in this letter to the Colossians primarily is he's been talking to them about the lordship and the deity of Jesus Christ. And, and a couple weeks ago, Doug taught that this mystery, this great mystery of God, and all of the questions in life about anything that, that really matters, this mystery has been revealed in Christ. And, and I love the way that, that Doug put it. It's open sourced, right? It's, it's readily available to those who have ears to hear the truths of the gospel. Uh, in the Colossians, uh, while there were some coming in and, and trying to push a false narrative that there's more to the gospel than Jesus, than, than simply the finished work of Jesus, the Colossians know the truth that their justification is found in Christ alone and nothing extra. So this mystery of God has been revealed in Christ, and, and Paul rejoices with them. In verse 5, Paul says he rejoices with them when they remain firm in Christ, and now he continues uh, with our passage today, which is this great exhortation starting in verse six. So I, I am gonna read it again. Beth, you did a fantastic job, but I'm gonna read it again to give myself a refresher. Um, so Colossians 2, six through 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority." In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside." nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So therefore, therefore, Paul writes to the Colossians in verse six, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And that's a fairly simple statement, right? You might've memorized this verse in Sunday school at some point growing up. Um, and it, it seems very simple and like, yeah, duh, walk, walk in Jesus as you received him. Um, but what we can't miss is, is the essence of what this actually means. Paul is saying, as you received him, walk in him. So then you'd have to ask the question, well, how did I receive him? By faith. If you're a Christian, you know this. This is a foundational truth. You received 
Christ Jesus as Lord by faith. And so Paul is saying, just as you started this whole walk with Jesus by faith, now walk out your relationship with him in the same way that you started. Keep going by faith. And one day we, we will walk with Jesus by sight and it'll be a glorious day. Uh, but until that day, we walk in him by faith. And I think it's likely that, that Paul, that the Lord feels compelled to teach this to the Colossian church and now us, in effect, because of how easy and subtle it is to move from this well-intentioned place of walking by faith to this place of human effort, to a place where you think, I've got to do this. I've got to get it done. Last week was Easter, and, and we celebrated the resurrected Jesus, the resurrection of our King. And, and, and why is this such a big deal? Uh, well, Jesus <clears throat> lived a perfect sinless life and he died on the cross as a worthy sacrifice for you. And then he proved himself to be God in resurrecting from the dead. And, and he's taught us over and over in his word that there is nothing additional that you have to do except to receive him. There's no additional work. There's no equation that says Jesus plus this equals salvation. And that's good news. Our life in Christ begins with faith and it's this faith that carries us through to the end. We are saved by grace through faith and we are kept by grace through faith. And that's so important to remember. And then Paul goes on in verse seven and he begins to describe how we do this, how we walk out our relationship with Jesus. He says, that you might be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul says that we are to be rooted. Uh, my family went up to Richland, Washington um, a couple months ago, and on one part of our drive, we were going down the highway, and we were, so we were going like 70 miles an hour, and there were tumbleweeds just flying across the road. If any of you have ever been up <clears throat> to the Tri-Cities area, you know this. It's a desert. And hey, Becca, if you have water, that would be super clutch. Um, uh, Sorry, guys. There was these tumbleweeds, dry desert. You get it. It's a whole thing. Um, Rolling across the road. And I'm like having to pump my brakes on the highway to not hit them. And, and the tumbleweeds, as I was preparing, they, they made me think of this. Uh, Christians with shallow roots, uh, pulled out of the ground and tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and human cunning, just rolling around like a tumbleweed, just, just ready to be smashed by a car. Um, but to be rooted, to be rooted in Christ means that our roots have gone down into the soil and they're pulling up all the nutrients of God's word. And they're, they're anchored, we are anchored in such a way that creates a stability in this crazy thing we're doing called life. We can have stability if we're rooted in Christ. So we're, we're to be rooted and we're also to be built up in him, Paul says. And these words built up here are in the present tense. It's not past tense, it's not future tense, it's present. So it's always happening. So you are always being built up in him. It's a constant thing that we need. So I hope that you're here today because you want to be built up in Jesus. I hope that's why you've come today. And, and, and church, as a side note, um, 
We're to be building one another up. That's part of the work of the body of Christ, is to help each other do this, to help each other to be built up in Christ. Continuing on in verse seven, we are to be established in the faith, Paul writes. And this is also in the present tense. This is also continual. To be established means to be settled or to be resolved. And and if the words in the faith refer to the truth of God's word, we understand that what Paul is saying is to be established in what we hold to be true. Establish yourself in God's word. Establish yourself with the word of God. Uh, a, a good check, a good way to do a checkup on yourself to see whether or not uh, you are established in your faith is when a trial comes along. Uh, there, there's so many great examples of this in scripture, and, and I know that as you sit there, if I ask you to do this, you could think of many times in your life when a trial has come along, when you faced something that just rocks your world. And what happens for us as believers when, when things like that happen in our life is we come to a, a fork in the road, right? We're walking along and things seem okay, and then this tragedy happens or this whatever, the, the, this thing that shakes us happens, and there's a fork in the road. And, and the options are, will I believe in and rest? Thank you, Lila. <clears throat> Excuse me. and rest in what I know to be true about God when this trial comes? Or will it break me? I've come to this this fork in the road more times than I can count. And and you might say, unfortunately. Um, I don't think that's true, though. I, I would say, praise God. Praise God that he's been gracious and merciful to me, that he's kept me from going astray when these trials came along. And this is a con- this continual process of being established in my faith has been the key. Remembering that everything else proceeds from this foundation, that Jesus has saved me out of my sinful flesh and he will continue to hold me throughout the turbulence of life. That, that's what being established in the faith feels like. That's, that's the, the experience of establishment. And then finally, the last thing he mentions here in verse seven is abounding in thanksgiving. Your Bible might say overflowing with thankfulness or even overflowing with gratitude if you have a different translation than me. And again, the, the tense here is present. It's continual. You are to be continually abounding, overflowing with thanksgiving. Uh, but we don't always feel thankful, do we? Sometimes we can feel the exact opposite of thankful. Um, if you've had a hard day at work, if your coworker is being difficult to work with, um, if your children are being disobedient, it's, <laughs> we might not feel like approaching God with gratitude in those moments, with thanksgiving. We may not feel like abounding in thanksgiving as we're being screamed at by our children or as our coworker does that thing again that they've done so many times and we've asked them not to do. Um, The thing is, it's not really about our feelings. Um, It's about God's desire for us to give him thanks for who he is and what he's done. It's supposed to be a continual thing, even a habitual thing, 
um, making uh, abounding in thanksgiving a habit. Uh, I I work with the wrestling team on campus, and uh, one of the things that the the coaches say um, to the athletes a lot is is they talk about having the right attitude and, and being grateful. Attitude of gratitude is the cheesy way to say it, right? But it's a good way to remember it. Um, having an attitude of gratitude, being every time they step out on the mat, being grateful that they have the opportunity to compete, that they're able-bodied, that they get to do this, that they get to be a D1 wrestler. It's a big deal. And, and I think there's a lesson there that actually applies really well to the life of the Christian. Because when we approach God with gratitude and thankfulness, what, what we're doing is we are actively protecting ourselves from harmful emotions and attitudes that can rob us of the peace of God. When we choose to be thankful, when we choose to go before God with gratitude, we're, we're protecting ourselves from emotions like bitterness and things that can move us away from God and his church. So give thanks to him, bless his name, this, these are the things that should be rising to the surface in our lives. This is what people who don't know the Lord should see in us as Christians. The people that you work with, the people that you hang out with, your children, they ought to see in you a spirit of thankfulness. So abounding in thanksgiving can have a significant impact not only on your personal walk with Jesus and your mental health, uh, but it can also have a kingdom impact. You can be part of bringing people before the feet of Jesus with your attitude of abounding in thanksgiving. Um, We're we're two verses in, how's it feel? (laughs) Moving on to verse eight. Uh, Look with me in your Bibles, Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. St. Paul brings up something here to the Colossians that you and I need to be aware of, and that is that Christians' minds can be taken captive. You are not impervious to the, the kinds of things that may come along and captivate you in a negative way. Paul gives this warning here. He basically says, see to it that no one takes you captive by anything that is not according to Christ. That's the paraphrase. And, and Further down in this chapter, I think in two weeks, um, we're going to look at this issue as it's playing out in the Colossian church, Uh, and Paul's going to address some of the specific things in the church in Colossae that they were potentially being captivated by or distracted by. Uh, But what I think matters to us today, primarily, is what we're facing in the world today. So what matters today is that we're not taken captive by those things that sound plausible, or maybe even righteous on the surface, but they're not the true and complete gospel. A good way to think about it is that when you hear the gospel and then you hear the word and um, run in the opposite direction. When you hear the gospel plus something else, that's not true. We are saved by grace and through faith alone, not by our works. And this is clear all over scripture. Do not let people add to your gospel, the true gospel that you know from the word of God. Okay, we're through the first three verses. Um, I've got maybe an hour left or so. Uh, I'm joking. <laughs> I, want you, I want you to look at something interesting with me. 
uh, in the rest of these verses. Um, if you take all of these verses, verses 6 through 15, there's a theme there that you can't miss. Look down at your Bibles and try to find the theme while I take a drink of water. If you go back to verse 6 and all the way through 15, you'll see these words continually popping up. Going back to verse 6, we remember that we are to walk in him and to be rooted and built up in him. And if you skip down to 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. For you have been filled in him, and in him you've also been circumcised. And then we go to the next section in verse 13, and Paul begins to talk about with him. Having been buried with him, raised with him, made alive together with him. And then at the very end, how he triumphed over all the principalities, rulers, powers, and so forth in him. So to recap, uh, we, we walk in him, we are rooted in him, the fullness of deity dwells in him, we are filled in him, circumcised in him, buried with him, raised with him, alive with him, and in him he has triumphed. You guys get the sense that Paul is trying to get us to focus on something specific? Paul is trying to get us to focus our attention solely on the person of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. It's all in him. It's all with him. Everything we have, everything he has done, it's all about him. In fact, our very existence is found in him. In him we live and we move and we have being. It's all centered around and predicated upon the person of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. So keep that in mind as, as we move forward, and I promise we'll hit these next seven verses faster than the first three. Uh, but, but continuing on in verse nine, look with me down in your Bibles, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Well, why, why is it all centered on him? Because the fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. And that's an amazing statement. Paul is saying here that the very essence of God is found bodily in the person of Jesus. The whole glorious total of what God is is found in Jesus Christ. And the reason I think that Paul is reiterating this truth now here in this chapter is because he's using it as a foundation for his next statement, which is in verse 10. Verse 10 says, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. This is why Paul, <clears throat> this is why Paul had to establish the fact that all of the fullness of God dwells in Jesus bodily. Because he goes on to make a statement about you, Christian. He says, In, in order to tell you that you have been filled or made full in Christ. So he begins with establishing that this fullness of deity dwells in the person of Jesus Christ in bodily form, and now you are found in Christ. You have been given fullness in Christ. Uh, but we have to stop and ask ourselves, what does this actually mean? What does it mean to be filled in Christ, to be made full in Christ? Uh, another word for it is to say that you've been made complete, but here's the problem. 
do we believe this? Do we live like we believe this? Um, do we really live as though we are filled up or complete in Christ? I think if we're going to be honest with ourselves, a lot of times we feel incomplete. If we're going to be really honest, a lot of times we feel inadequate. We feel inadequate on a regular basis. We feel like we're lacking something. And we know that we are inadequate from a human standpoint. Uh, we, we know that we mess up. There's no denying it. We know that we have weaknesses. Uh, we know that we have daily challenges. But Paul says in verse 10, you can see it in your Bible, he says that we're complete in Christ. So that's the problem. How, how do we reconcile this? Well, all the things I just talked about, but then Paul says we're complete. How do you reconcile that? It takes a shift in our thinking. You have to think differently. And, and, and when you begin to think as adopted children of God, when you begin to think as his elect, when you begin to think of these things from the standpoint that your identity is completely hidden and secured in the finished work of Jesus, this completeness in Christ begins to make more sense. But if you read or hear verse 10 with ears of unbelief, it won't make sense. Uh, if you let your feelings win out instead of the word of God, you will continue to feel incomplete, unfilled. Uh, but what Paul says here is true. It's in God's word. We know that it's true. And so Paul continues to write, again, with this new way of thinking in mind, this renewed, complete in Christ way of thinking. Look at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Well, this, this is great. Uh, I get to preach on circumcision today and my five-year-old daughter's in the room, so that's fantastic. Um, <laughs> what circumcision? Um, let me tell you. Here's, here's what Paul is trying to get us to see in verse 11. Circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham and his family. It, it was something that they did physically, uh, but more importantly, it was a picture of what God would do to his children in the future. Okay, under the old covenant, there was this literal cutting away of the flesh. Uh, but under the new covenant, there's a spiritual cutting away of the flesh. Notice here in verse 11 that this new circumcision, Paul says, is done without hands, without a knife. It's done spiritually. Uh, and there's a reality to this that goes beyond the physical. It's, it's the cutting off of the corrupt. It's, it's the cutting off of the immortal flesh that we were all born with. And, and Paul says that this has been accomplished. Past tense. And, and again, this, this is a new way of thinking. The flesh has been cut away. Christ did it. It wasn't a doctor with a knife. Jesus did it when you made him Lord of your life. That's what he means by this spiritual circumcision done without hands. And then Paul goes on in verse 12 with another statement of faith. 
in this new way of thinking. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Paul says that we've been buried with Jesus in baptism. I think most of you in this church um, know this and are on the same page with what I'm about to say, Uh, but water baptism is not the mechanism by which we are saved. It's a symbolic picture of the mechanism. Water baptism is a picture. Uh, It's not the saving reality. The reality is Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. The word baptism or baptized means immersed or enveloped. Christians, when you give your life to Christ, you were enveloped in him. At that moment that you gave your life to Christ, you were immersed in him. And so we go through water baptism as a picture of how we've been immersed and enveloped in him. And we've been enveloped in several aspects of his nature and work. And one of those elements that we've been enveloped in is his death. You and I were literally immersed into his death. And we picture that in water baptism. In water baptism, we we kneel there with a person, and as they go back into the water, it's a picture of them dying. It's a picture of death. And then we have them down in the water, hopefully not for too long, and they... And they come out, and down in the water, that's a picture of burial, right? They've died, they're buried. And then and they're immersed in the water, and then we raise them up, and that's a picture of what we celebrated last week. It's a picture of the resurrection. So Paul says that we've been buried with Jesus in baptism. We've been immersed into his death. And it's important that you and I understand that we've been immersed into his death because now we know and we can live like the old self is dead. We, we joined Christ in his death, and now the old self is buried. Uh, in my work with the navigators over the years, or as my time as a student, that was, that's one of the first things that you get exposed to in the navs, <clears throat> or it should be at least, is these... Um, these two verses, 2 Corinthians 5.17 and Galatians 2.20, and they're the, they're the first two verses that you learn as a good navigator student who's memorizing your topical memory system. And they talk about this new life in Christ. And it talks about dying to your old self. The old you has passed away and behold, the new has come. That's what Paul is trying to get us to see here. But we have to know that we died with Christ. The old us is dead. The old self is dead. And then we go on to read in verse 12 that we were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Notice, <clears throat> sorry. Notice that, that Paul says that, that we were, past tense, we were raised with him. We know that there's a final resurrection coming in the future. Uh, but we read here that one has already happened. Uh, you've already been raised with Christ. And, and I'm not talking figuratively. I, I'm saying that in a real way. When you came to Jesus Christ, when you confessed and repented of your sin, when you embraced what he did for you on the cross, you died and you were buried and you were raised again to a new life. Verse 13, 
And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So before we came to Christ, we were dead in our trespasses. Uh, The word dead here literally means a lifeless corpse. That's fun, right? We were a lifeless corpse in a spiritual sense. Walking around, living our life, but dead, without life. And so obviously in that state, there's more going on there than just needing forgiveness. You actually need to be made alive. Uh, You needed to be resuscitated, or to use a more uh, theologically rich word, you needed to be regenerated. And in verse 14, we see how Christ accomplished that for us. Verse 14, he says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This verse explains for you and I how we were justified in the eyes of God by the work of Jesus on the cross. We don't make ourselves alive. He makes us alive by canceling our record of debt. He paid the bill for us. Our sovereign Lord has this perfect standard of holiness that you and I couldn't live up to that created for us from the time that we were born this record of debt that we couldn't pay. And by our own faculties, we could never live up to God's holiness. And and in giving us the law, he showed us just how incapable we were. When when God gave the law, that's why we learn in the New Testament that that's essentially why the law was given. It was to show us that the law is a reflection of God's holiness that we could never attain to. So Paul is reminding us here that Jesus canceled our debt and he covered all the legal demands that were standing against us that were contrary to our freedom in Christ. So now, and this is so crucial to living a life of freedom in Christ, When God looks at us, when he looks at you, if you are found in Christ, he no longer sees your sinful state. He looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Jesus in us. And that is really good news. Finally, verse 15 to close this out. He, that is Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. In other words, what God did through Jesus is he took away their ability to demand repayment of this debt. Jesus took away the ability of the demonic rulers and authorities to condemn you and to accuse you and to demand repayment because your debt has been fully repaid. And Paul even goes on to say that he puts them to open shame. He puts the demonic rulers and authorities to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Total domination. Uh, Just to drive home what this practically means for us today as believers, I want to take a look uh, with you at Romans 8, 33 and 34, um, which should be up on the screen, hopefully. Otherwise, um, feel free to turn there in your Bibles if you want. Uh, Romans 8, 33 and 34 describes for us practically in the life of a, of a Christian, how this is playing out in our day-to-day life and what our relationship with God is like now. 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised, who who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who will bring charges against God's elect? God won't bring the charges. He's the one who justifies you. Jesus won't condemn you, Christian. He's the one who actually paid the debt for you with his own death. And more than that, even better, Paul goes on to say, he was then raised, and he's the one who's actually sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for you now. He's not condemning. He's not demanding. He's not accusing. He's interceding. I think one of Satan's most effective devices is to convince those whose debt has been wiped out that they still owe a debt. That they still owe something. That a debt still remains and that they need to take care of that. Friends, do not get caught up in the lie of the enemy and live under the burden of condemnation. If you are a follower of Christ, if you have, been made, if you have made Jesus the Lord of your life, then God has made you alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. He set your debt aside. He nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and they no longer have any power over you. And in fact, he put them to shame. And in the finished work of Jesus, he has triumphed completely over evil. So live your life in light of these truths. Live your life rooted in Jesus, built up in him, established in faith in him, abounding in thanksgiving, and live as one who has been forgiven. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, um, we need your help to live like this.